different things to me. All right. How's everybody feeling? I am. I'm doing all right. Woke up with a little bit of a scratchy voice, so I wanted to take it easy today. Um, and I got to, and then I forgot that I had to um, to record our talk with our guests tonight at 2 p.m. So I started thinking, all right, maybe I had a plan today. I was going to do something else, and I was going to play this on Friday. But of course, Friday would have been a great time to premiere it on rock on uh, you know on the network the the, uh, the interview with Tristan Gooley and also on the YouTube and on the Rumble well YouTube's out of the way for at least a week we've been suspended there and it was such a good show last night too good topics good flow the uh, you know the introduction of the inf- uh, the inside info line that was good I'm going to keep that one around for rainy days. Inside information line. And viewership was high on YouTube last night, which, which I, I made a mental note when I saw how high it was because it takes a while to get that kind of momentum built. I said, maybe I need to delete this when I get home. Between the subject matter and the attention, well, I said, to hell with it. And then this morning I woke up, I was like, damn, I called that one. But again, who should have to live like that? Who should have to live like that? Whether you take broadcasting seriously or not, who should have to live like that and ask those questions in a free country? You know, I was tagged for uh, medical misinformation, of course. So I got the strikes, another medical information strike from a company who, like many others, pushed social distancing. Is there any anything more anti-science than social distancing? But that's the world we live in. And... Um, like I said, ladies and gentlemen, please find other places to watch. We do this every time that there is some time off of YouTube, and I become so reticent, uh, so hesitant to really start hunkering down on jumping off at the midway point of shows on places like YouTube and bringing you to, quite frankly, TV. Um, and because, you know, I just... It's really all about audience retention and keep them, keeping people around. And you know, some, someone said today, why do you support YouTube still? They don't support you. I was like, there is no relationship with YouTube. I don't support, nothing I do supports them. No relationship there. Been permanently demonetized. It's just that you have to try, you, you really have to like program people into reminding them about just times and places when you're live, where to go, and contingency plans. And you'd think that people leave. They're a lot more mobile on on uh, the internet than they are in real life because you know it's you think it's so easy. You pop open a new app or you pop open a new tab in your browser and you go to a new website. It's not that easy. It's really not that easy. So you know if the platform is still there, I gotta still use it just until it's officially gone and uh, i guess we're just playing the slow drip death still game but um here we are tonight and i just want to uh, take this opportunity to, to thank you all for following me over wherever uh for those of you who do and um you know i love to see tens of thousands of new u- uh, users over on quite frankly.tv pilled.net like once you go into the chat room 
you register on pill.net foxhole and uh, it only takes a a second with your your uh, your your email but i would love to see shit like that on real platform there's 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 quite a few platforms that are for real on free speech that are decentralized that are independent that are for real on free speech and uh, foxhole's one of them that is that is embedded right in the middle of quite frankly.tv and you know why because they helped us embed it there that's not a feature for everybody and they listen to our feedback and they try to continue to build up the the platform for for rainy days like this and for future sunny days where we can just totally be independent and uh, and, and whatever but i got to say you know uh, i know that rumble is having its day in the sun right now and maybe that's why you know it's uh, it's yeah, it's you know it's a big magnet right now. They're having their day in the sun, but you do a little digging, as many of you have pointed out before. Rumble is BlackRock. Underneath it all, it is Vanguard. Underneath it all, they're there. It has hate speech nonsense written into its TOS. You know, it's it's all there. Who knows when the honeymoon ends over there on Rumble too? Well, again, I will be wherever the people are for as long as I'm allowed to be there. But always remember to directly support anybody in independent media that you really, really like. Know where their websites are, support them monetarily as directly as you can, and just understand that, um, you know, the tables can turn in an instant. So, that's out of the way. Now we can talk about just some stuff tonight. What are we going to be doing? I have a little bit of headlines to do with you, and then I'm going to leave you to a interview that I did with Tristan Gooley earlier on today. That will be uh, that'll be nice, and it'll be odd because for it's very rare. This happens every once in a while when we have a, a guest that has to be pre-recorded. I had to do that with John Whitehead before. Tristan is in the UK, so it was just a lot more convenient for him to do this around 7 o'clock his time instead of 1 o'clock in the morning. So um, I'm going to be able to be in the chat room. I'm going to be able to be a part of the audience, watching people in the audience. Isn't that going to be fun? Man, oh, man. Well, anyway, that's what we have going on tonight. It's a interview about natural navigation. Tristan Gooley is a nature navigator. He has learned through, as you're going to see, a very, um, very, very serious passion from young, uh, from young moment in life, where he just loved just navig- navigation. But how do you do it without all the GPS and all that stuff? What about the stars? What about the moon, the sun? What can nature tell you all around you? Not even just about wanting to get to one place to another. Obviously, as I bring up, there is a huge survival component to this as well. Navigation and being able to read water, any kind of body of water. We talk about things as little as dew drops, what they can tell you. Uh, and not just about, again, um, survival or how to get from one place to another, but being able to be in tune with your home, the earth, and being connected to it. And not in a woo-woo way either. It's uh, it's really a fantastic conversation i think it's a nice break because we'll be right back into the thick of it tomorrow when isaac weishaupt is on with us we'll be talking about the occult we'll be talking about media that'll be a a day after we have these competing well they're not competing you have a bunch of wannabes at a debate somewhere they are all 
basement dwellers, bottom feeders as far as polling goes, and it's really just a kiddie pool exercise. And uh, at the same time, you have Donald Trump, who was going to be with uh, Tucker Carlson around the same time. And boy, oh boy, they just released a one minute and 15 second clip um, for Tucker on X that's going to be released later on tonight. And it already seems infinitely more interesting than any of those other roly polies are going to be talking about. Check this out. Why aren't you at the Fox News debate tonight in Milwaukee? Well, you know, a lot of people have been asking me that. When you say there are people on stage who shouldn't be running for president, who do you mean? Whatever happened to Mike Pence? He's out there attacking you. What is that? Do you think Epstein killed himself sincerely? Do you think we're moving towards civil war? Good to have you at Bedminster. It's very nice. I love it. You're saying they stole it from you last time. Why wouldn't they do the same this time? Oh, well, they'll try. They're going to be trying. Mitch McConnell was trying to get senators to impeach me. Crooked Joe Biden is so bad. He's the worst president in the history of our country. I don't think he's going to make it to the gate, but, you know, you never know. It started with protests against you, and then it moved to impeachment twice. Right. And now indictment. Are you worried that they're going to try and kill you? Why wouldn't they try and kill you, honestly? They're savage animals. They are people that are sick. So do you think it's possible that there's open conflict? I, I can say this. There's a level of passion that I've never seen. There's a level of hatred that I've never seen, and that's probably a bad combination we're doing this interview but we'll get bigger ratings using this crazy forum that you're using than probably the debate no doubt about it <laughs> no doubt about it as far as ratings go and he really will be in both places at the same time he's bilocating tonight okay trump is bilocating tonight everybody's going to be fighting his ghost at the other debate and then he will be um he will command uh, most people's attention over here with Tucker. And that's just, that's just how it is. Um, but still, I know some of you probably today saw the, the mug shots, a mug shot of Rudy Giuliani. You want to talk about savage animals. Look at what they've gotten. They gave us a mug shot of Rudy Giuliani and uh, Sidney Powell. I said it was in maybe by December of 2020 said Sidney Powell is a national hero um and man they are they are savage they are savage rapists they really are former Georgia state senator David Schaefer proudly announced his glowing mugshot as his new profile picture though on uh, on Twitter or wherever good for him good for him so they're gearing up, and Donald Trump is tomorrow, I think. This is from Breitbart. Donald Trump defiant declares he will proudly be arrested in Georgia. What are you going to do? Yeah, you're going to have to. You have to take away as much pleasure as you can. Um... A defiant former president, Donald Trump, has declared he will proudly present himself at the Fulton County Jail in Georgia on Thursday for arrest on charges related to a grand jury alleging he tried to illegally overturn the 2020 election. This is the find the votes call in one of the this is that state is such a disaster, such a disaster. But they're going for it because, as he said, in a very succinct way, they're savage animals. Driven. 
driven. All right, so we got that coming out tomorrow. I did hear about the downed plane taking uh, Prigozhin with him, the Wagner chief. And I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm gathering information right now because we had a lot of, we asked, we asked the question, what do you think is going on with this back when that was, ha what was that, early July or something like that? Forget. Um, who do you think is behind it? What do you think the, the so-called afternoon coup was about? Was it a double cross? Who was involved? Uh, when Putin said that this is treason, was he serious or not? Because if he's serious, how can someone like Prigozhin ever feel safe? How would you ever go into a plane again? How would you? At least to travel within the country. How would you ever bring yourself to do that again? It, uh, you know, no matter how many assurances, public assurances, uh, Putin would say, all right, let, let bygones be bygones. So what's really added here? So I'm going to just read what comes out. I'm going to go to see what uh, Scott Ritter and, and uh, Douglas McGregor say. Obviously, Doug McGregor's spot with Tucker Carlson uh, last week was... I mean, if you watch him enough, you, you understand the situation. He just puts into very... He articulates it very well every time. He's just very astute and, um, and clear. In his, and it's a very grim picture. It's a grim picture because, once again, at the end of it, there is no chance of winning for the NATO slash, quote-unquote, Ukrainian side of thing. There's no, there's no chance there. So what's the end game? We're still waiting for it. Still waiting for it. And, uh, and maybe we'll be able to, to open up the lines on that sometime uh, either tomorrow we're going to be off on Friday night, and then I'm going to be live on Saturday night to do the deer scene, and who knows what else comes through. You know, I had a plan for this week, and then all of a sudden, things went sideways. So, you just, uh, I guess I'll just try my best, and hopefully you'll be there to hang out with me. So, that's going on over there in the Russian end of things. And... The protests and the demonstrations in places like Staten Island are still uh, getting very heated. I see that Scott Lobito's out there and um, with the migrant invasion. It's not like a migrant. It's not even an invasion. Yeah, it's an invasion. It's an invasion with migrants. It's an invasion of domestic forces by domestic forces using migrants. It's not like there is a, uh, a hive mind out there in, in, for every military-aged male in Central South America and most of Africa at this point that are just like, we must go to the United States. It's not like they are all working together to do this. Um, but it's getting bad. It's getting real bad. And you know, it may be too hard to reverse it at this point, but at least people are seeing it. And at least people understand just how bad it's going to be. There was a time where I said, you know what? Uh, I, think, I think we can get around this. I think we can get around this. This was years ago. I think we can get around this without the, the, the crummy sight of taking people from houses and deporting them and all that stuff. But, yeah, I mean, you're going to need mass mass deportations if you ever wanted to regain any kind of control over this country or Europe. Mass deportations. 
And I guess you can mask, you can uh, in, you can influence deportations in a number number of ways. We can talk about that some of the time. I don't want to keep beating that dead horse because there's other things here. This one is from Missouri. I thought it was very nice. A Missouri woman uses spicy tortilla chip to start a house fire, police says. This is like the MacGyver of arson, whoever she is. A woman from Nixa was arrested for first-degree arson after the fire department said she poured gasoline on some clothes, lit a spicy tortilla chip, and started a fire at a Greene County home. Patricia Williams, 42, is being held in Greene County Jail for arson and other warrants after an incident on August 11th. According to a probable cause report, police arrived at the scene and saw smoke coming from the back door with people standing out front. The witnesses stated Williams started the fire and that she was placed under arrest shortly after. The report states that witnesses inside the house saw Williams pour gasoline from a soda bottle onto clothes and the floor of the laundry room. Williams then lit a Takis Takis tortilla chip on fire and tossed it into the laundry room. And that's all she wrote. Three other people were inside the house at the time of the fire and all escaped the house with no injuries. Williams was seen on gas station surveillance footage prepaying for $2 worth of gasoline. $2. That's very, uh, very efficient. Very efficient. Here's another one for you. Instant regret. This is from Study Finds. Have a lot of fun with Study Finds from time to time. Instant regret. Two-thirds of Americans say, don't tell guests to make yourself at home. Well, you know. Well, let's read. Hosting friends and family from out of town always sounds good in theory, but it doesn't come without its challenges. Two-thirds of Americans have told a guest to make themselves at home and regretted it later. That's according to a new survey of 2,000 Americans, which found 72% have told a guest to make the space their own, and 91% of those have regretted it afterwards. Some of the reasons respondents have regretted allowing people to make themselves at home include guests expecting more meals than planned, 54%. Overstaying their welcome, 45%, and making a mess, 39%. You know, I think this all just comes down to general societal decline and bad parenting. It makes bad, it makes for bad, bad everything, including bad, uh, you know, bad house guests. I would be, I would never walk through a person's home unless I'd known them for decades. Or, or or maybe even a few years and we got real close real fast or something like that and the families are into whatever and we're all I don't know but to walk through somebody's home and even open up their refrigerator you know how much trust you know how how many how much I need to have in the bank with somebody for me to feel comfortable to ever go and do that cleaning up you know who else out there if you're especially if you're in somebody else's home you go and take a leak or something like that you are taking some toilet paper and you're doing a wipe around the 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 rim or something like that so there's no there's no dribble drabble nowhere things like that i can i can feel when i'm not wanted (laughs) it's just but most people are oblivious maybe they're just not made conscious of it it's just it's whatever i i see here's the thing is I don't know, we needed to have some sort of a a similar 
survey done like this 50 years ago to see if there's been a decline in, uh, well, I mean, even Benjamin Franklin said, what, fish and house guests stink after three days? So that's the 18th century. So I guess house guests have always been terrible. Results also look to see who is making the worst guests with friends at 42%, siblings at 39%, and in-laws at 37% topping the list. For the third of respondents, 35%, the situation had become unpleasant enough that they've even told someone that they're a bad guest. How about you just say, you got to go. Hey, we're leaving. Uh, we got to wrap this up. Or I don't know. It's a little awkward. On the flip side, 75% of Americans surveyed believed that they are a good host, with 31% of those saying that they're a very good host. I think I'm a good host. Commissioned by Avocado Green Mattress and conducted by one poll, the survey looked at the lengths that the hosts go to and the steps people take they can take to ensure that their home is inviting. In order to be a good host, the four over four in ten have purchased a new bed or new mattress for the people to sleep on when they stay the night. Wait a second, what? What do you mean? Are we talking about a weekend guest? Are we are we talking about Somebody's been evicted and they're asking for a place to stay. Because why the hell would four and ten go out there and buy a whole new bed for somebody that they're just coming over to stay, stay the night? I mean, it's one thing to buy an aero bed or purchase new furniture to ensure guests are comfortable. 45%. Four and ten. That's high. That's high. I think we're talking about something different than just, uh, you know, your cousins from Massachusetts coming into town for a weekend and they're going to crash in the living room and, you, you know, you throw some pillows and, and arrow beds down there and whatever. That's, uh, that's something. Furniture can be spendy. Respondents also admit to using other people's homes as inspiration for their own. And 43% have purchased an exact piece of furniture, whether it's art, furniture, or whatever else. That they first saw while at a guest in someone else's home. With that, 60% are more likely to purchase a copy if they know it's sustainably made. No, that's stupid. But I understand why, you know, if you see something you like, that's, that, that's how economies work, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. You see somebody that did something nice, you want it too, and you, you, you work for it, and you go and get it, and that's good. And that's also how fashion and style changes and, and uh, proliferates. So... I think we, we inspired a couple of people to do their, their weddings differently based on how Lauren and I did it. It was so nice and chill. But, um, all right, that's it. 718, let's get this one kicked off. Did I miss anything? I don't, I don't think I missed anything. Wait, what is this? I'll save that for tomorrow. No worries. All right. We have a nice, nice topic for you tonight. Something to take your mind off the crazy because uh, you're going to be able to watch plenty of crazy after this show ends. Around 8.30, you're still going to have time before the debate starts and then the Tucker thing and all that other crap. And I'll be watching it too at some point tonight. But first, I have Book Club at 8.30. That'll be nice. And then we have, oh, so much more tomorrow. Want to talk about occult imagery and media after tomorrow while they're flaunting all these mug shots and getting people all riled up and, oh, it's going to be a good one. So don't go anywhere. In fact, help me share it because on a night like tonight, 
Your help in syndicating the show is more important than ever. And I hope more and more of you are watching on QuiteFrankly.tv, where it's always home. And you can make yourself at home over there. Because if I don't want to be around you, I can just leave. And you can stay if you want. Sleep all over the place because the couches aren't real. It's just a website. Goodbye. Encore, 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 s'il te plaît, encore. You let one ant stand up to us, then they all might stand up. Those puny little ants outnumber us a hundred to one. And if they ever figure that out, there goes our way of life. It's not about food. It's about keeping those ants in line. That's why we're going back. Does anybody else want to stay? Let's ride! So, so I am, uh, I was really looking forward to today's show because all sprinkled throughout this summer and into the fall now, we have great, great guests that do really interesting things. They cover interesting topics, a lot of things that we can just learn to just keep the broadcast schedule diversified. Well, tonight, that is the case with Tristan Gooley. So, I want to read you a little bit about Tristan and what he does. Um, Did I have anything else before I wanted to? Okay, well, good. Good. You know, tomorrow we might talk a little bit about population correction. There is a, uh, there's an article out that is based on a study that was talking about how we are in for a major population correction, which means a population reduction. Oh, isn't that interesting? Who's going to be correcting us? Like, this is The Shining. But I am, uh, I'm pretty sure we need a few things every day. Blue Monster Prep, firearms, ammunition, and a good sense of direction. Well, tonight's guest, Tristan Gooley, is, um, is just a guy to talk to about with direction. He is a navigator, if there ever was one, and a really a, a breath of fresh air. And I really accentuate fresh air because he wants people to, by and large, yeah, go and be part of his courses, read his books, but take that knowledge, go outside. You know, it's all right to to learn things on the internet. It's even better to take those things and bring them out into the real world. So Tristan Gooley is an author and a natural navigator. His website is naturalnavigator.com. And this is his bio from his website. Tristan set up his natural navigation school in 2008 and is the author of award-winning and internationally internationally best-selling books 
including The Natural Navigator, 2010, The Lost Art of Reading Nature's Signs, Walker's Guide to Outdoor Clues and Signs, and How to Read Water, The Secret World of Weather, and How to Read a Tree, which just came out this year. We talked about many of these books. Some of the world's only books covering natural navigation. His books have been translated into 19 languages. He spent decades hunting for clues and signs in nature across the globe and has been nicknamed the Sherlock Holmes of Nature. I like it. He has written for the Sunday Times, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the BBC, and many Many, many magazines. He was able to spend some time with, quite frankly, today. That'll go in his resume, I'm sure. Tristan has led expeditions in five continents, climbed mountains in Europe, Africa, and Asia, sailed small boats across the ocean, and plotted small aircraft to Africa and the Arctic. He has walked with and studied the methods of, uh, oh, especially, I love his work around the Vikings. Tested Viking navigation methods in a small boat in the northern in the North Atlantic, leading to an academic paper, Nature's Radar. He is the only living person to have both flown solo and sailed single-handed across the Atlantic, and is a fellow of the Royal Institute of Navigation and the Royal Geographical Society. So he has spent some time with us tonight. I'm going to be. Jumping into all of the chat rooms for a little bit to see how people are doing. I think this is a really interesting show, and uh, and I hope you all enjoy. Okay, so with that, my 2 o'clock recording of an interview with Tristan Gooley. All right, so we are joined I by look the same. Tristan Gooley. I'm so happy to have him here, naturalnavigator.com. Uh, Tristan, welcome to the show. You are uh, you're, you're one of the crown jewels of my summer schedule here because it's just a, your work is incredible, your uh, resume is incredible, and I think that you have a lot of information that average people could really use in ways they don't even expect. Thanks for having me on. Frank, really looking forward to chatting. Uh, a prolific um, writer. you got a lot of books out in your library. I know you have one that you just released recently, and uh, we'll talk about that in a second. And I have, uh, I have ordered your books for my personal collection, but I'm, I'm starting to think that um, I'm starting to wonder, I should say, whether they belong in my library or in my emergency bag because these, this is really an anthology of basic survival skills, if you think about it, at least as far as situational awareness goes. It's really interesting you say that, but actually my philosophy is a bit different. So these skills will definitely help you in a survival or, or emergency situation. And there are a lot of survivalists who, who enjoy my work and I'm grateful for that. But the truth is I, I write for a, a, a broader situation. I, I wouldn't even say a broader sort of readership because I'm thinking of normal times outdoors because a lot of these skills, if we think we're gonna be in the unlucky, you know, one-tenth of one percent who end up in a in a nasty situation we we miss a lot of the fun because you can learn to navigate using the sun you can read patterns in the water you can understand plants and animals on on an average you know walk i mean i i train people from all backgrounds some of them just want to just add a layer to their to their kind of sunday uh, sunday fresh air some of them are, are are doing some quite hardcore stuff but the way to enjoy it is actually not to imagine that these skills are for when it all goes wrong they're actually for when it's all going right 
That's a wonderful. Now that is an interesting and wonderful way of putting it. And I and I was thinking about that too, as I was just thinking about things I wanted to talk to you about because I had to imagine that this leads to a general increase in just enjoyment, just because knowledge, whether whatever it is, especially advanced knowledge of something, anything, it adds a certain level of confidence in your walk. I mean, just to, to know that you just. I don't know you feel more in tune with things around you, and I think that um, that is a lot when it comes to our connection to nature and being able to read nature, which is what you really do. Um, that is adding a um, that's adding a, a layer of things that have been stripped away from us for a while now, and I think that the more that we get back to nature and knowing what exactly we're looking at, we start feeling a little bit more connected again, and we start realizing that it's really home, that we're connected, we're connecting to home, and. We're not separate from it. We, we, I, th- I think everybody feels um, at one sense or another that we are outside of nature. Yeah, I, I, I agree with everything you're saying there. And if I can just pick up on two words you used, connecting and, and the word read. So I think most people these days feel we've, we've become a bit distanced from the natural environment. The modern lifestyle is driving a wedge between us and the way our ancestors experienced the outdoors. So there's this this very widespread sense that that reconnecting with nature would be a positive thing, positive physically, mentally, absolutely every way we can think of it. But then then what tends to happen is people kind of like, you know, they walk out the front door and they have the sense of, well, I should be connecting with nature. How exactly does that work? You know, you can't, there's no, there's no USB port for connecting with nature. So how do you actually do that? So then I come to the word read because my work is all about deduction. It's all about the idea that every single thing we sense outdoors, mostly mostly what we see, but also what we hear, smell, occasionally what we taste uh, and what we feel is, is giving us messages basically. And my whole philosophy is every single thing we, we sense outdoors will tell us something. It is a sign, it is the clue. Uh, and I welcome anyone, in, including you, Frank, you know, just to pick anything random, something you've seen in the last week, throw it at me. We haven't prepared this at all. Um, you'll, you'll confirm that. Uh, and I, I will show you how how you know uh, my mind works when I'm when I'm dealing with anything outdoors. So go on, just for fun, just throw something at me, something you've seen outdoors. You can't be right or wrong, just anything you've seen. Uh, okay, uh, let me see. Oh, you know, you know, I wanted to ask you about dewdrops. I was tell I was showing my I was showing my three year old daughter the other day. She was wondering why the grass is wet. I said, "Oh, that's dew." She said, "Dew." Now it's one thing to say, "Oh, it's condensation," all that. But what what can you what can you glean from that? Yeah, I think we've all had that experience, whether it's a, a camping trip or a, or an expedition or or how, you know just walking out in the morning and sometimes there's there's the wet layer on some grass. You notice your shoes getting wet, and then. 24 hours later, you do exactly the same thing and the ground is dry. So what's happening is, as, as you say, um, there's moisture in the air all the time. The, the amount varies, but there's always moisture in the air. So if the grass gets cool enough, the, 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 the gaseous um, moisture condenses and forms dewdrops. But why does, that do, why does it do it sometimes and not other times? Well, it comes down to, to heat escaping from the ground. And we can think of times, there are times when there's a blanket over the ground, a layer of clouds, and we can think of that like a sheet over, over our bed. It keeps the warmth in. So if you've had a cloudy night, you don't find dew in the morning. But on a, on a, a morning with lots of dew on the ground, if you go for a very, very short walk, you'll start to notice it's not everywhere. 
So the second there's a tree, the dew disappears because the tree is acting as that sheet, that blanket, keeping the warmth in. So dew is a, is a simple sign that we've had clear skies the night before uh, and that there's a clear line from that, that patch of ground, quite often grass, to the sky. Uh, if anything gets between the ground and the sky, whether it's a cloud, a leaf, um, something we leave out on a lawn perhaps, there won't be dew there. So it's a, it's a simple sign. It's telling us what the weather has been doing normally. And then that gives us a high high probability of, of fair weather. It doesn't guarantee it. But if you've had clear a clear night, which creates the dew, there's a high probability that, that you're going to have good weather. And again, like you said in the opening, when I, when I alluded to survivalism, uh, this is not necessarily something that, you know, this is not a survival skill or anything. But it, it, just knowing that, that is, you, you go to the doctor... To talk about, you, you take your vital signs, you understand your body, what's going on. There's just things you understand why things are. This is that, that knowing is part of the connection of, I understand this place. I know how it works. And, that's, it, and it's really cool in that respect because the education is just, it's just priceless. Well, you know, let, let's stick with water because I know that you, you wrote about the secret world of, of weather. And I was wondering about those smaller bodies of what everybody talks about. Uh, hurricane tracking that's all people want to talk about these days let's track some hurricanes what about uh so making our way up from dew drops what about just ponds and puddles and and uh, babbling brooks yeah i i focused on water in a in a book called how to read water it does what it says on the tin and uh and the the that book came about because i'd spent years uh, practicing and studying navigation on quite a big scale. I, I've, I've sailed uh, small boats on, on some quite big journeys. And as part of my, my passion and research for natural navigation, I, of course, came across the Pacific Island navigators. But I also researched the, the Vikings, the, the Arab navigators, went deep into history. And, and what I found was they had incredible skills. And in my mind, these skills for many years sat in a box i this is what you do if you're in the pacific this is what you do if you're if you're in the north atlantic and then this extraordinary thing happened to me when i was walking past a pond in the south of england in my home county of sussex and i saw a pattern in the water and i went i know that that pattern and all that was happening was the the breeze had set up some some ripples uh which behave exactly the same as ocean waves just a different scale and they were bending around a small island of um uh, lilies, the, the, the floating leaves on the surface of the pond. And it created the same patterns that Pacific Island navigators use to sense land when they're well beyond visual range. So a Pacific Island navigator, historically and, and a few to this day, can lie on the deck of an outrigger canoe, uh, close their eyes and sense the motion of the waves and say, ah, this rhythm now is different. We are, we are getting reflected swell off land. I know where the island is. And there are five simple patterns that form around an island. They're, they're reflection and refraction, the bending. Um, and once you know them, I often think of these signs as, as characters. And as we get to know characters, if we like them, they become friends. And I'd befriended this pattern, and I'd seen it in oceans, uh, both on a boat and from land. And then I suddenly saw it in a pond. So that drove me to, it, it helped me cross a, cross a massive bridge from thinking, these skills, as I say, they're not, they don't sit in a box and you pull them out when you're in the Pacific or the North Atlantic. They are, they're transferable, they're portable skills. So the joy is whether we're practicing looking at dewdrops or looking at ripples in a, a pond or even a puddle, 
Uh, this is sharpening our awareness. It, it is it is rekindling the part of our brain. I mean, we were born to do this stuff. Uh, the modern lifestyle tries to trick us into thinking we weren't, but this is what our brain really wants to do. Yeah. Oh, well, you, when you, you mentioned the the Vikings, the Viking navigation methods, uh, did did this precede your crossing? Because I know that you crossed the Atlantic single-handed. I'd love to know about the uh, the boat you used, how long it's like, the, just the conditions, and what what are the uh, what skills and what that you employed the most as you're making your way across the Atlantic by yourself. So it was the Viking navigation study part of the, what would be your expedition across or have it all linked together? So my, my personal um, relationship and journey through navigation started with being restless, really enjoying the process of, of going on expeditions, then realizing that the bit I actually liked was shaping and planning the journey. You know, there are lots of us who just enjoy People don't use paper maps as much as they used to, but when I was growing up, that was very much the go-to. And, you know, spreading that map on a table and going, I am here, this is how I'm going to get there. And I fell in love with navigation. It took me a few re- few years to realize that. I mean, I'd been, I'd been walking and jumping in boats and things like that for, for many years before I realized that navigation was the thing that excited me. But once I realized that was my passion, I decided to to try and, you know, master it as best as best I could. And... I did that by setting myself goals of increasing um, ambition, but I didn't really have any interest in the the scale of the journey. I didn't have any interest in trying to do anything, um, you know, courageous or crazy or, or or bold. I was interested in in I wanted to put my head on the pillow at the end of the day and say, I am a good navigator, and and the way the way I convinced myself that. The only way I felt I could do that was not by getting bits of paper, by setting myself goals. So I, 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 I sailed uh, small boats to lots and lots of different places, and then I set myself this goal of of sailing a small boat, 32 foot yacht, um, across the Atlantic, and then flying a single engine aircraft uh, back across the North Atlantic, um, uh, um, and that really was about. Um, as I say, making, you know, it was my own course I'd set myself, basically. I wanted to, I wanted to feel I'd mastered navigation. Now, the irony was that that took seven years from a basis of being a decent navigator to getting to that point. And during that time, I I didn't fall out of love with conventional navigation. I will always love the traditional and the modern skills. But I started to realize that instead of things getting more fun, you end up staring at screens. So, for example, to fly an aircraft solo on that sort of journey, you have to you have to pass uh, flight tests and exams, which prove you can fly without looking out of the window and an instrument rating, which is the opposite of what I was trying to do. I was trying to enjoy enjoy the journey through the world, and you end up staring at a bank of screens and dials. So that led me to natural navigation, uh, and the, and so I fell in love with natural navigation whilst I was doing um, whilst I was completing my own self-imposed goals, uh, and so. It was a it was a sort of with with hindsight it looks like there was a plan that, that lasted 25 years but actually like most people i just woke up in the morning and think this is what i this is what i quite like to do today and this is what i quite like to have done by the end of the year and um it, it just took me on a, in a direction that i couldn't have predicted but quite a fun one now, yeah i was wondering about your your, your upbringing i was going to ask you about that too i personally me and my brother and our friends in childhood we loved maps too 
It didn't matter where we can get them. I always ask my mother to buy us road maps whenever we would go into a stationary store. No, no, for no other reason than it was just awesome to look at them and to pretend that we were doing some. We make maps of the backyard. And, and so I, I was just wondering, is this something that were you in the scouts? Uh, did you have a, uh, a military background? What, what was it? But, you know, just that childhood passion realized is just as good as anything else because those are the ones that usually take you farthest when they're so pure. Um, let me ask you about being up in the air, though. It's one thing to put all of your natural navigation skills uh, to rely on them on, on in, in a boat. But when you are up there with all that instrumentation, do you just go through the study, pass the test, learn how to fly the plane, and then once you're up there, are you trying to spend a little bit more time? What are you tracking? If you're once you're up in the air, you're you're licensed and you're up there. What are you looking for to get to where you want to go without relying totally on the instruments in front of you? Yeah, it's in aviation. There's a there's a legal requirement to use the instruments for good reason. You're endangering yourself and others if you don't. But that doesn't mean you can't actually make yourself safer and make it more interesting by having a complementary layer of awareness. Mm-hmm. So to give you one one very sort of fundamental basic example, as I took off from uh, Goose Bay in, in Newfoundland, you know, push the throttle forward, off we go. I'm actually squinting and struggling to see see through the windscreen because. Uh, I'm taking off into a rising sun. Now I'm taking off northeast, and it's May, uh, and and people with with plenty of outdoors experience know the sun rises north of east in the summer and rises well south of east in the winter. But there are many people who don't, and including a lot of pilots. You know, I speak to a lot of pilots who are extremely safe, competent pilots, but they genuinely don't know where the sun rises. And so it. it I didn't need to know that it made sense, the fact that I could barely see forward because of the sun pouring in through into my eyes. But it helped me, you know, connect with, with you know, I was, I had probably, you know, a dozen different dials and screens and things bleeping at me. But but the fact that, that the, the brightness made sense, I was connecting with it, you know, in the unlikely event that the kit did go down, I wouldn't suddenly think there's no way I can work out which way to, which way to go. Um, so it's, it's in all situations, whether it's a, a, a short walk um, uh, on the weekend or a, or, a, or an expedition uh, right at the edge, natural navigation doesn't have to be the primary skill, but it can always be a complementary one. And what I often say to people is whatever kit you're using might be a traditional compass. It might be a smartphone. It might be uh, over the years I've had to use about 25 bits of kit with three letter you know, um, uh, acronyms. Uh, any, any of these amazing bits of kit before if you're not in a hurry and there's not an immediate safety issue before you let the kit give you the answer see if your senses will will do it you know before you let the compass tell you which way is north ask the tree next to you which way is north and you'll probably find there's a pretty strong answer hmm. that you know let's i'm glad you brought that up especially with the uh, the the sun rising in the east uh setting in the west because I wanted to ask you about situations in places like the woods. Uh, now, this this could just be, again, for general enjoyment. It's also just a good skill going into a, uh, a patch of land that is undeveloped and can be very disorienting, uh, because that is, that, that's something that people deal with all the time. We, there's so many stories around here uh, about people dying, getting lost and dying in the woods less than a mile from where they parked their car just because they can't get their bearings. Um, so starting with the sun, 
I know it's not the only information you need to be able to get back to a parked car, but uh, starting with the sun, the best all I ever could say was, oh, well, we know that when the sun rises, it's in the east. So we can at least figure out where east and west is and then from there deduce other things. But as you say, there, uh, it's not always perfectly due east uh, throughout the year. And that's something that, that most people have to would have to uh, you know tune themselves to. But what about nighttime? How useful is the moon in it, all of its movement and all of its phases? Um, you know, aside from a light source, how are you using the moon? Then I'd love to talk about constellations. Yeah, there are there are three methods I use um, to to navigate using the moon. Uh, the first one I share with people is called the crescent method, and when you see a crescent moon imagine a line that touches the horns of the moon a, a tangent that just touches both horns and you extend that down to your horizon and you'll be looking roughly south if you're in the northern hemisphere the higher the moon is the more dependable this method as as the crescent moon gets lower it, it becomes less accurate but it's the sort of thing that takes you know you you might have to think for a few seconds the first time first two or three times you use it and then your brain will just take over, which is something I've written about as well. You, you, our brain likes to take shortcuts. It, it was born to do this. It doesn't want to make this stuff difficult because our ancestors, they, they didn't want to sit an exam every time they had to find their way home. They, this stuff has to be quick and easy. So that's a very easy method with the moon. There are more complex methods. There's, um, there's a thing called the phase method, which is the shape of the moon is telling you where it is relative to the sun. And we can always work out, we can always estimate what direction the sun is. So if we take a, a, simple, a simple example, if you see half of the moon is bright, let's say the right-hand half of the moon is bright, that's in astronomy terms, that's called a first quarter moon, which is confusing, but it just means it's a quarter of the cycle. Now that is going to lag the sun. It's going to be 90 degrees behind the sun. So when we see that moon, let's say... Let's say it's September at 6 p.m. and the sun is setting in the west and we see a first quarter moon. West, 270 degrees. That moon is 90 degrees behind that, i.e. lagging it. It's, it's due south. Now, that's the first time anyone hears these sorts of things. They think, oh, God, do I really want to sort of be doing what sounds like a maths exam? <laughs> exactly. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But... It's, this, this is it's, anything that's new. There is that little that little bump in the road as you start the learning, and then once you do it a few times, uh, your brain just sort of says, "Don't work too hard. I've got this. I've got this sorted." Um, and the, you know, there's there's to give you a nice an even simpler example. A full moon is full because it's opposite the sun. So we see a full moon rising in the east as the sun sets in the west, and we see a full moon setting in the west as the sun rises in the east because the full moon is opposite. So um, the, the sun is due south. If we're north of the tropics, the sun is due south in the middle of the day. The, the, the full moon is due south in the middle of the night because by that point, the sun is due north. We can't see it. That's why it's the middle of the night. But it, the first time we hear any of this stuff, it's like, ooh, do I, do I, I've got enough stuff going on. Do I really want to sort of you know, take up space in my brain? But, but trust me, it's, 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 a, it's a tiny bit of kind of like curiosity, uh, a few seconds thinking, do it a couple of times, and then your brain sort of goes... Yeah, this is, I don't know all the fuss about this is easy. Why did, why did anybody invent a compass? I can do this. Yeah, it's more so about once you start understanding how the motion, the motion of everything above you, uh, it starts to make better sense. And maybe if you don't know the actual, the numbers, the, the actual angles and, and, the, and all that, uh, you still get a, a, you have your bearings. And that's what you're ultimately looking for. Um, what about constellations? 
And then I want to get back down to surface-level questions. But some key constellations as far as direction and navigation goes, that's number one. And then anything else you have about constellations as far as connectedness and just general did-you-know? Okay, so... The way the way people are first introduced to navigating using the stars is is not a bad way typically is is you find this this pattern in the sky it's not technically a constellation it's just this shape um most people in north america call it the big dipper but every every culture has its own name for it there's no right name for it um and and it looks a bit like a saucepan and if you imagine lifting up the handle of the saucepan uh, with some milk in the two stars that the milk would run off are your pointer stars you go from the the bottom one to the top one continue that for five times that distance and you find the north star and and the point below that on your horizon is within one degree of true north um saying it verbally you know it's quite hard to sort of picture but if you look at a you know in my books there are always illustrations of these techniques because when you're when you're talking about stars and the moon it, it, you learn much faster with a picture or two and and again you do that a few times and there's this fantastic couple of moments that tend to come when people have practiced that you know maybe three or four times so the first couple of times somebody does it there's this very healthy sort of skepticism kind of like this can't really work can it so people tend to get out something to check a smartphone or a compass or something like that now this is very interesting because what they're doing is a, is a interesting cultural thing they're basically saying i trust a bit of kit in my hands more than the night sky now this moment comes and it's quite soon where you realize that the the north star is far more dependable than the bit of kit but another way if you pull out a compass and you point it at the north star and the compass is telling you that's east what's got the problem the star or the compass the compass the compass is knackered um so but that that takes that's a shift from the very sort of modern contemporary mindset where bits of kit and computers are going to kind of solve problems for me to the traditional understanding where you know by the time the North Star is north, you know, uh, it won't be in a few thousand years. But if it, if it wasn't tonight, we've got bigger problems than uh, than navigation. Um, so, so that that's um, you know, you then you then reach the point where you're actually checking your kit against the star. So, if you've got to worry your smartphone compass isn't working and you know how to find the North Star, you can check your smartphone compass. It's not it's not the compass that's right; it's the star that's right. If that, if, if you see what I mean. I do, and I. I uh, this this explains why my my uh, observing the night sky has gone so poorly the last couple of years because I was I obviously it's wrong but I thought that it was the last star on the ladle that pointed out toward so I wasn't looking at the actual the actual uh, uh, well no 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 the the handle the ladle's the actual dipper there I was looking at the wrong star so um, yeah I guess I would be going what west. Uh, it's something, <laughs> I, but that it makes depends a lot on the time because the 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 saucepan or the big dipper um, uh, wheels anti-clockwise around the north star. So the north north star is pretty much fixed, and the reason it's telling us north is because it's directly over the north pole. Put another way, if you're standing at the north pole and look directly above your head, you'd see the north star. And when we say um, north, what we really mean is towards the north pole. It doesn't matter, you know, if you're on a you know, mad, mad expedition crossing, you know, uh, a Utah desert, or if you're, you know, strolling around in a in, in Central Park, if you use the word north, you mean towards the North Star. And so the, the North Star works because it is sitting directly, um, sorry, we mean towards the North Pole, and the North Star is sitting directly over the North Pole. 
So the analogy I sometimes use is if, you, if you're planning to meet somebody and you walk over a hill and you're planning to meet them under a very tall streetlight, as you walk over this gently curving hill, you see the streetlight before you see the person. And you say, I can point to where they are, even though you can't see them. So when we point towards the North Star, we're pointing towards the North Pole because we're looking at the light that's directly above the, the, the North Pole. I find in natural navigation, you have to try lots of different sort of ways of looking at these things because we all learn in different ways. Some people are more visual. And, and the way I teach and the way I write is to kind of throw loads of different ways of cracking, cracking a nut and different ones work for different people. But, but we can all do this stuff. None of us would exist today if this wasn't doable because our, all our ancestors could do this. Mm. Otherwise, they wouldn't have survived. So we know we can do it. It's just like, like learning anything new, whether it's kind of language, music, whatever it is, you know, navigation, you, you, you have to expect the very first few times you do it, it feels a little bit like a challenge, but very, very quickly. And I, I'm talking quite often seconds, it starts to feel comfortable. Well, it, it's very obvious that as far as determining north, south, east, and west, there's a number of tools that are at your disposal there. Um, is there anything else that the skies can, any, any kind of uh, stories or, or information, useful information, or just information to enjoy knowing that the skies at night or otherwise could unlock? Anything that off the top of your head that you, uh, you think would be cool to know? Yeah, there's a nice simple way of looking at the night sky, which is that every single um, pattern of stars can help you find your way. And there's a reason for that, because there are certain stars that, that give us a very strong sense of direction. And let's just stick with the North Star for now, but I'm going to introduce a different idea, which is that if you, if you open up um, a map of the world, an atlas or something like that, and you say to somebody, um, okay, uh, point, point to New York on this map. Now, depending on their age, they're not going to take very long to do that. They're going to point, you know, um, they're going to point quite quickly. If you then say, okay, now point to Madrid, uh, depending where somebody's from, they'll probably get it right or roughly right. But to, to point to it on the map, what they'll be doing is recognizing broad shapes. So they might be going, okay, I can instantly reckon, recognize North and South America. There's Europe. I know we were talking about Spain. I know that's down the bottom left. I know it's sort of in the middle of there somewhere. So what you're doing there is you're taking familiar shapes and using them to help you zero in on a, on a, on a point. You can do that with every single bit of the night sky with practice because the stars don't move relative to each other in the same way that countries don't move relative to each other. So if we, if we take, the, take the Madrid example, you turn the map upside down, you can do exactly the same exercise because it may look a little bit, little bit sort of unusual, a bit foreign, the fact all the countries appear sort of upside down, you can still use the shapes to find that. You do exactly the same thing with the night sky. With practice, you get to know certain shapes. So we, we learn the, the Big Dipper or the saucepan or, or whatever we want to call it. And next, we learn a, a shape, which is like a stretch W called Cassiopeia. Mm. And, that, and then we learn how that takes us to the North Star. Uh, we then learn there are lots and lots of other shapes, and we learn the ways of getting from them. So it's, I do like the, the kind of map analogy, because if you've never, ever seen a map of the world, and somebody put one in front of you and said, point to Madrid, you're going to go, this is impossible. This is, well, I, don't, I don't even know what I'm being asked to do here. But it's the same with the night sky. It's just nobody's ever sort of shown you where the countries are relative to each other. And the countries are the constellations. Now, it's like somebody's turning the map all the time, but the, the relationship stays the same. So if you know how to find, um, you know, Los Angeles looking, looking at a map of the world, 
it's exactly the same as as finding a particular star in the night sky once you know the shapes to look for um and and it's it's no it's no more complex than that it's just these days we learn where countries are but we don't learn where the constellations are but it's very easy to do i think that's why the age of exploration for anybody who looks into it very uh, seriously is is just so fascinating we've had these passing thoughts over the years especially when we learn about you know the the uh the um, expeditions of Christopher Columbus and others where you have these really um, 15th century explorers who are, I mean, they're, they're traversing all the, 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 the seas of the, of the earth just by really understanding the skies and whatever has been, uh, what has been mapped out. But it's, it's really something else. I have to imagine that as far as the Vikings method of navigation goes was that mostly predicated on what was going on in the skies as well yeah the 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 vikings all all um uh, pre-modern navigators were using a similar and overlapping skill so they would all use clues from the sky so if we take columbus as, uh, as an example um uh, finding direction using the sun and the stars fairly straightforward, but one technique uh, Columbus and every one of that era, and to be to be honest, all of history up until the last hundred years, would have been very familiar with is that the the angle of the north star above above the horizon is your latitude. So you'll remember I said if you're standing at the North Pole, the north star is directly over your head. So it's 90 degrees from the horizon to directly above your head. The North Pole, pole your latitude there is 90 degrees north. If you're at the equator, it's very hard to see the North Star, but in theory, it's sitting on the horizon. It's zero degrees above the horizon. Your latitude at the equator is zero degrees. And, you know, for temperate zone places, uh, you'd find it halfway halfway up the night sky, 45 degrees above the ground. And you can actually gauge that without instruments, because if you stretch out your, your arm and make a fist, that, that measures roughly 10 degrees, mm-hmm. um, you know, one thirty-sixth of a circle. But another way, if you go like this, one, two, three, four, it'll take nine from the horizon to above your head. So if you're out on the ocean like Columbus, with, with even the skills and the limited equipment they had in those days, you can estimate direction within, within a couple of seconds, and, and it barely takes five seconds to, to, to gauge latitude roughly. Now... That's super, super simple, but a little bit rough. So so what navigators decided to do is, well, let's try and measure it a little bit more accurately because if we're a degree out, that's 60 miles, that's quite a lot. So they thought, how can we do it? Okay, what if instead of reaching out our arm, because that's, you know, that's not exactly, why don't we get a piece of string and then make a card at the end of it and then we can fix the distance by holding the string with a knot between our teeth and then a little wooden card fixes the angle there. That's a very simple instrument called the Kamal, which has been used uh, in the Middle East and Africa and places like that for hundreds of years and, and to be honest, wherever anyone's been going to see in, that, in those areas as well. So the whole history of navigation, in a sense, is taking what is what we can do in a few seconds to get a rough estimate and just fine-tuning it. Mm. So the sextant does nothing more, literally nothing more, than measure angles quite accurately. That's all it does. All right, so then here, I, I, I found another question i got to ask you before we go back to the ground level again, and that is, well, I guess it goes into weather and everything else. All right, you're, you're navigating the, uh, the Atlantic Ocean, and you are using the stars and whatever else going on there, and then it is just a very unlucky three days of cloud cover. You can't see the sky. What can the clouds tell you in a pinch about what direction you're going in 
and how you can stay somewhat on on track well in that in that situation traditional navigators would use two things they would read the sky they'd also read the water so in the sky um i i in my books i encourage the philosophy of nothing is random and it's true sometimes there's so much going on it's quite hard to to unpick the exact story of everything that's happened but if we start with a simple premise that clouds don't pop up for no reason so the simplest clouds cumulus clouds the sort of fluffy ones or what some people call the simpsons clouds in terms of the opening credits mm -hmm. you know nice nice little ones going across the blue sky they are always telling you that there's something warm below them so you get more of them above towns you get more more of them above dark woodland because those two heat up quicker than the surrounding areas and you get more of them over islands so navigators would use them to to see because they're always a lot higher than the land you can always when i was sailing to iceland for example i saw clouds you know a couple of days before before um you know a clear view of the land itself and um that's you know that that's fairly standard and then it, it gets down to much a much more subtle art uh, and like all of these things you know i again i use an analogy here if we think of uh, playing the piano you can knock out some sort of noise with no training in in two two minutes you just sit down there and you can make some sort of noise to to play something that is is sublime beautiful and highly skilled we're talking about years so reading clouds is similar you can do some amazing things within seconds but in terms of the expert navigators they were looking at subtle changes in the color on the underside of clouds so for example in the in the pacific you get a slight tint of green over a lagoon um or you get a you get a slight i see it around here in, in my home there's lots of hills on uh, lots of hills with dark woodland on the top and because i practiced it for years i can just see a very slight dark shade which allows me to see where the the wood on the hill is even though i can't see the wood on the hill because it's it's behind trees um and then the, the waves the water has a memory so all land and all water has a memory for the wind so trees for example in my book how to read a tree I, I give lots of examples of where you can read the fingerprints of the wind on trees but out in the water it's the same the memory's shorter but it's a lot longer than most people think you know there i was down in uh, cornwall in southwest england recently and i was surfing on waves that were probably generated by a storm a week earlier in in the middle of the atlantic um so the the, the water has a memory and once you've tuned into the direction the waves are going uh, even if you've got a totally overcast sky, you get a sense of direction. Mm. If those waves then meet something, it creates patterns which, which gives you other information. But even in the middle of the ocean, navigators can tell which way they're going just from the, the wave patterns. And obviously that's applied to land or sea because clouds and stars are everywhere. Um, that's okay. Now well, I'm glad I asked that one. So since uh, I want to ask you about trees now, how to read a tree. This is your latest release, no? Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, the only thing I know about reading trees is when the tree is already down, has been cut apart, and we get to count the tree rings. That is the only thing I've ever known about them. Um, but what is something... Uh, but, but then, of course, just in the media, the media kit that uh, I was sent of yours, on this, you left four did-you-knows here. Leaves with pale central streak mean water is nearby. Young, uh, young, low-growing branches show that the tree is struggling. Reddish or purple bark signals new growth. This one is interesting. Branch direction 
that can serve as a compass. Let's start, let's just, I mean, this is just an example of the kinds of things that you learn in your, your books, which I hope everybody goes and checks out. Um, they can find your entire library linked in your website, which is in the description of this episode. But let's just take one of those out of there. Uh, what do you think is the most uh, important, the important to know? Is it, once again, on a navigational standpoint, the branch direction? I think um, the, the place to start is, is there's no such thing as a symmetrical tree. Nothing in nature is symmetrical, but we're, we're focusing on trees here. If you ask someone to draw a tree, they'll draw a symmetrical one, but symmetrical trees don't exist because they are reflecting and adapting to the world they're in. So all we have to do is understand the fingerprints left by the sun and the wind, and every tree becomes a compass, and it also becomes a map. So let's just take uh, the sun's kind of um, fingerprints and footprints it leaves in the landscape. Uh, we get more light from the south because the sun is due south in the middle of the day. Trees need sunlight, of course. It's their breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So we find that they grow bigger on their southern side. Um, so just from a from a distance, uh, you know, if you're totally new to this and looking for it for the first time, try and find an isolated tree. You know, if you're, if you're lucky, you'll find a nice big one. Ideally, uh, to start with a, a broadleaf deciduous tree on its own and just have a good walk around it. Uh, you can do it summer or winter, but but just have a walk around it, and you'll notice it's not symmetrical. And you'll just notice there's a bit more tree, more branches on the south side, because the tree is growing towards where it gets its, its energy from. The next thing to note is the angle of the branches. Now, trees don't know where the light's going to come from. They don't, they don't grow thinking, oh, south's there, let's go that way. They just respond to the light that they sense. So what they find is they're getting more light from the south side, and that leads the branches to grow directly out towards that light. Now, on the north side of the tree, there's not any direct light reaching there because it's all it's shaded by its own southern branches. The only bright light that branches on the north side receive is from high above. So that means that what we find is if, if we say this is the north side of the tree, we find the branches on the north side are growing close to vertical. They're trying to reach the light coming from above the tree. Right. On the south side, there's lots of light coming in, and we find the branches going out towards that southern light. And this leads to an effect I, I call in England, we call it ticks, uh, the tick effect. In, uh, in the U.S., I believe you call them checks, the check effect. And it looks like we've just got a a sort of check uh, across the shape of the tree but this is these these patterns are in every single part of the tree every leaf every root every trunk every bit of bark is responding to the environment it's responding to sun to wind to water and so once we know how we can think of it a little bit like tracking you know somebody everybody i think knows what a dog's you know footprint looks like in sand or mud mm -hmm. It's exactly the same idea that the sun and the wind are leaving these patterns on trees and, and it just takes a little bit of um, an introduction to that idea and then you start to see these patterns. And uh, I, won't, I won't pretend that the very first tree you look at is going to give you 10 examples of north really strongly, but I do guarantee if you look for this, you know, over three or four trees and you spend a few minutes doing this, you will start to see some of these patterns and they will start to give you a sense of direction. Sense of direction and, of course, just a 
really amazing understanding of how nature works and and how we respond how everything in the ecosystem responds and and is dependent on each other and it's just uh it's tremendous now one of the other things there you said was leaves with a pale central streak mean water is nearby now um i'd like to use this as a segue into something else and i hopefully we can fit in a couple more questions because i see time is running out and uh i'd love to ask you one one or two more but Finding water. Uh, we're talking about being on water and trying to find land or just trying to get to where we need to go next. But what about being on land and needing to find water? Uh, we uh, Obviously, we've heard about digging wells and just, hey, dig until you, st- dig until you find something, uh, you know, wet. But that can't just be all there is. What is the key to finding good water sources? Yeah, it's it's a good question and a really fun, interesting area. If if you speak to uh, indigenous tribes people to this day, and certainly all through our history, if you told them that your way of finding water is to look for water, they'd find that funny, because it's it's a ridiculously crude uh, way of looking for water. The way to find water is to understand the relationships between plants and animals and water. Every plant and every animal has has to find water, including us. That's why we have so many cities on rivers. Um, but if, if we think if we think of the trees, you know, we can pick any any plant or animal. But if we think of the trees just for now, each each family of trees. And in the book, I make the point early on: we don't need to know the names of every single species, but it helps to know some very very broad families. So we, we it helps even if we can't name them to know that willows look a little bit different to pine trees, for example. So willows are a, a good example of trees that thrive on the edge of water. Uh, we tend not to find any in dry places, you know. Uh, so what I encourage people to do is is whatever, there'll be some fresh water near you. You know, you might not, you know, might not pass it every single day, but it won't be far away. Uh, we human beings congregate around water. So what I encourage people to do is just notice the trees you see near that water. Um, it, it can be a river, it can be a lake, it can be a pond, it can be a coastline, it really doesn't matter. And then as you move, away and i mean you know not far like two or three hundred yards away you'll notice the trees change quite dramatically and we don't actually need to know the the names of the trees we just sort of say to ourselves those are the sorts of trees i'm seeing at the water's edge these are the sorts of trees i'm seeing when i've walked a few hundred yards away and maybe i'm on a little hill and you do that a few times and then as as i keep coming back to you the brain will take a shortcut and you get this fantastic moment where you just get your brain saying to you by the way there's water over there and you haven't even asked it because it knows the pattern. Now, with with a little bit of practice and curiosity, we start to notice that things like the insects, butterflies, birds, all of these things change dramatically as we get nearer to water. And it really, you don't have to be an outdoors person at all to to be able to do this. You just, every single time you're you're near a patch of water, you just say, okay, I'm gonna take 20 seconds now. I'm just gonna take a note of the, the plants, the trees, the animals I'm hearing and seeing. The sounds change completely. And then you do the same thing when you when you know you're a little bit away from the water. 20 seconds. Okay, I'm just going to take a note of that. Do that. Do that three or four times over the next month, uh, and you get to this point where you, your brain just says, "Okay, this is this is you know this is what I've been doing for tens of thousands of years. I'm glad you're finally doing it." You know, yeah. and and it starts feeding you these these cues. You get this sense. It's the same with the sun. It doesn't take long of saying to yourself, 
every time you see the sun in the middle of the day that's roughly south before your brain will just say to you you know you might be driving somewhere and you just get a sense of where south is you haven't even asked it so these these things are very fundamental it's not we're not asking our brain to do something like you know software which it really hasn't evolved to do this is this is this is what we were born to do yeah exactly it's 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 a uh, not even an upgrade it's just plugging the the line back in plugging the ethernet back in um and 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 feeling and just understanding what's going on around you. So then let me ask you this then. Uh, we've talked about finding a little bit of information about what's going on around you just based on the, the smallest of dewdrops. What about desolate extreme places? Let's talk about a, uh, for example, what can be taken away from a, uh, a sand dune in a, in a desert. Um, is there anything useful, obviously in a very rough situation that if you, if, if you don't have any prospects of, I don't know any kind of gear or anything. You're, you're probably in. Uh, you're probably screwed one way or another. But it, let's say you're just you're not too bad off. What can a sand dune tell you? Well, there's no patch of the Earth's surface where you can't pick up wind navigation clues because the wind is always leaving these footprints, and it actually is very very easy to read ones on the sand. So on a on a small scale. You know, you don't have to go to the desert to practice these things. They work in the desert. I've I've used them in the in the Sahara and and deserts in the Middle East and and other other places as well. But the truth is, you can practice these on a, on a beach uh, or even in dust. Um, you know, on a street, you'll see some of these patterns. But every time the sand uh, the wind blows over the sand, it picks up some of the sand uh, and it moves it, uh, and it creates patterns on different scales, uh, a little bit like ripples and waves. So what we find is, even, even in harsh deserts, you'll find little obstructions, like little stones, occasionally tiny little clumps of, of very hardy grasses and stuff like that. There's always, you know, all the way across the desert, there are little obstacles, and, and they block the, the wind flow, and you find these tails of sand running away from the, the obstruction. And then you find the wind is forming these, these major dunes. And the way, the way sand dunes form, uh, there are different, different shapes, but the, the general pattern is, we have the shallow side of the sand dune on the side the wind has come from and a steeper face, what's known as the slip face, on the side the wind's been going towards. So all you have to do, and it's what I do before I even set foot in any desert, is form a relationship with the long-term wind patterns. Because the wind can blow from any direction on any one day, and in sandstorms it can do some really interesting things. But a lot of natural navigation is understanding the footprints the wind leaves, but that is only really useful once you've built a relationship with the wind. So, so wherever I go in the world, I, I quite often before you know an aircraft wheels have even touched the touched the tarmac, I'm I'm trying to understand what the long-term patterns there are. So, if we take a very very simple example, if we say that the prevailing wind, the direction the wind comes from, most often in a desert is from the south. Every single sand dune is a compass. But if we don't build that relationship, all we're doing is, is seeing the patterns. We can't read them. So to read them, we have to build the relationship with the wind. So it's, it's you can't, if you're dropped, you know, you're never ever going to be dropped in a box and have absolutely no. So it's all about that early, early sort of curiosity to sort of say, okay, where am I? What, what has the wind been doing? You know, and I'm, I'm put under pressure occasionally by journalists and others and, and in my own training. And, and the more pressure I know I'm going to be under, the more sensitive I'm being and the more curious I'm being about, about trends and patterns because all of these things are easy to read, but we only read them if we have the curiosity to, to form a relationship with the, the, the things leaving the footprints, in this case, the wind. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, in, in many cases, like in a desert, the 
the atmosphere itself can be very dangerous and uh, and unforgiving. But in other places, you know, just understanding local local fauna is and and, and flora, I guess, because you know, I, I mean, danger can come in the form of a mushroom or a berry bush when it comes to outdoors. But the mo- but the most obvious, I guess, we should go to next in my final two questions I have for you are uh, are animals. Um, I know that you talk a little bit about this in some of your books there, especially when it comes to um, knowing whether or not you are being stalked or how to track animals, whatever is going on. I mean, animals leave behind just as much information as, I would say, um, uh, trees and plants and and the wind does. So what are you, what are you looking for in particular when you talk about living, uh, living, living creatures of the forest? What are you looking out for that? Okay. So we, we can think of two broad areas to, to, to kind of sharpen our skills in habitat and habits. So habitat, simple idea. Every single creature has a home. So if we, if we show enough curiosity to say, where, where do you live? then every time we see that creature, it's giving us a sense. So today, for example, I saw a lot of uh, dragonflies. They they are telling me I'm near fresh water. Now, I know there's a pond there, but as is often with these things, we're building that relationship when we don't need it. And then occasionally I'll bump into it. I'm in a place doing a natural navigation exercise. I'll start to see dragonflies. They're telling me I'm getting close to the fresh water. So, but it applies to everything. It applies to, to the soil. You know, there are... There are butterflies that will tell you, you know, the exact kind of pH of the of the soil you're walking over. But every every animal has its has its home patch. It also has habits. So if we take um, a bird I, I saw today, the name of the bird and the type of the bird is not important. It's just an example. I'm just 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 going to throw out there because it's one I saw today. I saw a bird uh, called a jackdaw, uh, and it likes suburban areas. It doesn't like to be in the wild, and it doesn't really like to be in the middle of towns and cities. So it was telling me I'm near a town, but I'm not on the edge of the town. I'm, I'm, I'm out a little bit from it. It was on top of a tree, and its habit, like most birds, is to face into wind. So I was low down, lots of trees around me. I couldn't sense the wind, but all I had to do was look on top of this tree, and it was giving me a map through its habitat, telling me I'm quite near a town, but I'm not at the edge yet, and it's telling me exactly what the wind's doing. And so much of this subject is joining simple pieces together. And, and I find it a compliment when people say things like, well, it's kind of obvious when you think about it, or it's, it's obvious in hindsight, because my work really is about all the stuff that, you know, there's a danger we get to the end of our lives and go, there's all this stuff I could have seen quite easily and didn't. And, and we can join some quite obvious jigsaw pieces together. So if there's a significant change in the wind direction, there's going, there's going to be a big weather change. So... We join a few pieces together. We notice the birds were facing one way in the morning and they're facing a different way in the afternoon. That prompts us to notice, yes, there has been a wind direction change. Ah, okay, there's a big weather change coming. So the, the animals can tell us huge amounts. You know, the, the body language, there's, there's, you know, there's, a, there's a book I, I wrote in, in North America. It's published as The Nature Instinct, which has a lot on animal body language and how that helps us predict everything is a sign everything is a clue so we can predict what a bird is going to do next we can predict what a deer is going to do next what a squirrel is going to do next um and and these things are not they cannot be complex because all creatures including us 
um, survive by learning how to do this. It is, it's about, you know, in terms of our ancestors, it was probably the only exam you had to pass, you know, mm-hmm. if you see what I mean. You, get, you know, you can get away with not being any good at, at all the subjects taught in school these days pretty much, but you absolutely had to know that when the birds go from singing to and then silent, something nasty might be around the corner. That stuff you have to know. You see, in that answer to question, I didn't even ask, and that was, of course, <laughs> how can this, how can this be applied to someone who lives in a big city, where so much? I mean, these days people talk a lot about. Um, I mean, everything, every need is is met uh, in a city. Uh, resources available is usually at a flip of a switch or the turn of a knob. We hear more and more about these so-called 15-minute cities where everything's within walking distance that they want people to get to get jammed into. But, um, you know, the birds, the birds are still there, the squirrels are still there, and the signs are still, you, know, it, you, you still experience weather in a city, and uh, I, that's, that's how I guess um, that was going to be one of the questions I wanted to ask about. How does this apply to people who are uh, urbanites? And there you have it. Well, Tristan, you've been so gracious with your time and uh you have such a uh, a wonderful library of work here that i hope people check out what do you have coming up next because i know that you've led expeditions into five continents you've you uh, your your work is nowhere near done because you're driven by a passion so do you have any appearances coming up do you have any um uh, expeditions you're going to be leading uh new obviously you have the new books on trees what comes next for you I'm uh, I'm putting some time into uh, something I've really enjoyed, which, if I'm honest, I didn't I wasn't sure if I would, which is, is which is sharing digitally and and running online courses and things like that. Because, in a perfect world, I would I would run courses in person with very very small groups of people, but that that really does narrow things. And COVID forced me to start developing things online. So, so I've put huge um, effort into building resources online now and. Um, on my website, naturalnavigator.com, you can get information about that. Um, there's, there's hundreds of photos and videos of clues and signs. And it, it's really nice for me because most most people who have an interest in this subject can't get to where I run my courses. I do run physical courses, but, you know, there's at best a few hundred people a year will, will get on those, whereas thousands can can learn online. And it's it's really nice for me because, it uh, you know, through through books and and the the online side of things um i don't want people to spend their lives on on computers that's obvious but you can learn something on a computer and then it adds a layer to your to your next sort of half an hour outdoors and that to me is you know that's the best of both worlds if if we use these tools to make our lives better um and increase our our awareness and enjoyment of the outdoors then then we lose nothing very well said and uh, thank you again for all the time tonight Tristan Gooley, uh, naturalnavigator.com. It's been wonderful to have you on. Thanks so much, Frank. Really enjoyed our chat. Okay. Take- it's intermission time, folks. Time out to press the like button. Thank you. Welcome to intermission. We'll, we'll be right back.
entering, quite frankly. 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 We all support quite frankly. Not quite. Quite frankly. Joe Brandon. Quite frankly. In Roma, Italia. Quite frankly. You're going on Frank's show tonight? I want to get a Coke. Can I get a Coke? So everybody watch. Quite frankly. With Frank. then and this is now all right ladies and gentlemen I'm just uh, I'm happy that you I saw so many people enjoying it I was talking a little bit in the discord talking a little bit in the rumble uh, dropping in on all the chat rooms though not talking in all of them I mean I was laying on the couch enjoying myself it was actually kind of nice but there's only like a live interview, but uh, it felt like it was live to me back then. And crazy, didn't have to edit anything. You know, it's one of those, I wondered to myself, when I have, if I have the opportunity to edit, there's no editing when you're walking the tightrope live. When you go back and edit, would, if you have the opportunity, would you go polish it in some way? No, no, felt good. Felt good. And now a couple of super chats. Here are some uh, donations from the foxhole on quitefrankly.tv. Thank you, Robert Starnes. Thank you, Sean Joe, C. Blanche. C. Blanche says, Eagle Eye, Godspeed. Paulie 9363 and Porpoiseful and Alan Wrench says, Great guest. I agree. I agree. I hope you all enjoyed it. These are the types of things that I, um, I don't think that we're ever going to be, we're ever going to regret having mixed into the overall experience. And there's no rumble rants, so that's easy. And we're kind of clear, clear to go. So with that, ladies and gents, thank you so much for all of your attention. And now I'm going to get ready for book club, which starts at 8.30. And of course, there's so many other things to watch tonight. And um, unfortunately, because I'm doing book club on uh, Foxhole in a private stream we won't be able to have a simultaneous public stream until I'm done at 9.30 or else a combination of the Tucker and the debate thing would be playing right now on the network but uh, you know again woke up this morning and a wrench was thrown into the gears so we're making some adjustments along the way Thank you so much. We'll see you tomorrow night, seven o'clock. Isaac Weishaupt will be on with us, and it'll be a uh, it'll be a doozy, I'm sure. It's the first time we're going to be speaking, uh, and I've known about him for a while. But let's see what we come up with. All right, nighty night, everybody, and thank you for everything. Good night, and always remember that's. Quite frankly, is filmed before our live studio audience. And now, our super chatter, starting with and ending with all of our wonderful friends on Foxhole. Thank you so much. We will see you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock, right in the same place that you left me. 
In the meantime, please become a sponsor of the show. You can find all that information on the Sponsor Us tab on QuiteFrankly.tv and the bookmark QuiteFrankly.tv. Sign up for the free mailing list. Stay in touch. All right, be good. <laughs>